Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. My name is Kevin Barra. I'm the college pastor here at the Southwood campus, just starting up um, in that position. So of all the transitions that are happening at Grace Bible, I am one of those. So, so thankful to be with you here this morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be continuing our study in theology that we've been doing this summer. So Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read some verses for us, and then we will jump in. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. And really, I'm going to be basing everything we talk about this morning from from this text in particular. So if you go to this one text, that is where we will be all uh, of this morning. It says this, Finally, after everything I've said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given of the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Well, this is a very fun section of theology, and we're going to be talking about angels, spiritual forces that exist out there in the world, spiritual forces so terrifying that our modern people have displayed them in in images such as this, terrifying creatures, right? Cosmic forces of wickedness. And honestly, in our modern culture, this is the image that is captured in the minds of most modern people. If I was to tell you about angels and demons, you would either, if you were older, you would pick up a book uh, like the Da Vinci Code, uh, that, that author, and talk about angels and demons. Or you would think about these little cute little characters in the midst of cartoons. In fact, most people in our culture, when we talk about spiritual forces they would say something like this, that's passe. That's something in the past. That's something that's not as as important today. In fact, our modern science, our modern technology have kind of moved us uh, past those beliefs. But all you have to do is look at the modern art of today and you see that we are not so far removed from spiritual realities. Now I say modern art, I'm gonna focus on one particular thing because you may not be art lovers, but I'll tell you this, you are movie lovers, and I believe that movies are our modern art. They, they capture the, the most creative people, the best writers, the best composers, the best artists, all together to put out these amazing movies. And if you're just to look at modern film, you would see that we are people that actually believe in a spiritual realm. In fact, I looked at the most popular movies of 2016, 
And uh, the movies include a list of the top eight movies of 2016. So if you were to, to look at the best movies that we made, this is the top eight. Number one is Finding Dory. Seems a little mythical, right? Captain America, Deadpool, Jungle Book, Zootopia, Batman versus Superman, The Secret Life of Pets, and X-Men. Three of these movies are basically cartoons, right? Our modern version of cartoons. Four of them are about comic heroes. Four of these movies are primarily about comic heroes. And I'm just going to look at three of them real quick. And three of the movies that I want to look at right now are, are The Civil War by Captain America, Batman vs. Superman, and X-Men Apocalypse. And as you look at those films and you think about our modern ingenuity, our modern way of thinking about life, you would think that we are well beyond supernatural villains, right? People with cosmic powers. We're so far beyond that. And then you take one glance at our, the movies we pay billions of dollars to see, and what do they show? What's the storyline that's played out? It's cosmic evil versus supernatural good. It's cosmic forces of darkness that, that, that people have to get together against to go to war against. And not only in our, our modern movies, in our modern fiction. If you've been caught up in the, in the past several years about um, the books that have captured the imagination of our teen girls, it's something along these lines, Right? And this is kind of in the latest of array of many books that have captured the imaginations of all of our teens across the world. And they made movies that aren't making a lot of money on them. But they were very popular books. And this is just Allegiant, uh, is the, just the latest in the Divergent series. And it's really kind of a, of a storyline that followed many of, across, um, many books kind of follow the same trajectory. Including Hunger Games, The Giver, uh, Maze Runner. They all kind of follow this same path. And several of them have females as their primary uh, leaders. And, and my wife and I actually went and saw this movie in theaters. It's called Allegiant. And what's so interesting about this storyline is, is what's told. It's that there's this some evil organization that's behind the scenes that the heroes have to overcome. See, the, the story starts out and, and, and you see this, this, war, this world divided by factions that are kind of vying for power. And in the next movie, they, they escape out of this wall, this, this walled city, and they escape and they meet another person on the outside of that walled city. And as they meet him, they feel like maybe he has the answers we're looking for. Maybe he's going to save us from this little war that we have in that little part of the world. And then he takes Triss, the hero, to visit some, some government officials in, the, in this far-off place. And as they go there, what they find out is that the whole world in which Triss and her friends are living in is basically a cosmic joke. It's a social experiment that's allowed to, to run its course. And as you look at these realities and movies that we watch and the art that we produce, I see two key realities. The first is this, that we believe in cosmic forces of darkness and we fear unknown, unseen villains. And as you see all the storylines play and all the movies that are made, you see these two truths rise to the surface and the Bible tells us the same thing. That there is a bigger picture out there. There is a spiritual world that we're engaged in and if we don't realize it's there, we're not going to respond correctly. And this morning I want to look at a passage, this passage in Ephesians. 
and it's designed to equip us in the midst of this spiritual conflict. This war is playing out in our world, and if we're not aware of it, we're not going to respond appropriately to it. And the first point is simply this, that we live in a spiritual world. Ephesians 6, verse 10 and 11 says this, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And suddenly you see the characters in this cosmic conflict, right? You see God and you see Satan. And the Bible from the very beginning says that the world is not merely what we see. There is something beyond the physical. There is the reality of the spiritual. And once again, as soon as I say that, there's so many objections. I mean, aren't angels like Bible fairies? I mean, aren't they just kind of sweet little creatures that just kind of show up and they're like pixies, you know? They just kind of help things out and then they kind of flitter away. Isn't that what they are? And wouldn't you say that we're much smarter than that. I mean, today, science explains what, what we use spiritual beings to explain long ago. In fact, one article from Huffington Post says it this way. 500 years ago, witches were drowned because it was thought that they, possessed, they were possessed by the devil. 2,000 years ago, Christians and pagans alike believed that the world above and below the earth was stuffed full of spiritual principalities and powers. The sky was thick with unseen angels, good and evil. So there must have, they must have been very busy uh, and efficient air traffic controllers throughout this area. Now only backward tribes and a few religious extremists believe in the existence of evil or good spirits. Maybe you've heard that. I think this article from the Huffington Post captures the idea, but you might be surprised if you actually talked with people what they really believe. In fact, right now, there's been a major study by Pew Research looking at millennials, this kind of next generation, basically the, from the ages of 35 to 25, somewhere, somewhere in that range, there's debates on which, who, who qualifies to be a millennial. Uh, don't worry, there's a new generation coming, and you can fight for that, you know, be in that generation too. And what they've seen in this Pew Research study is that there's this, this move away from, from religion, in fact, there's been all this hubbub about religious nuns, people that aren't nuns like Catholic, but no religious affiliation, nuns. And as they've seen them, there's been all of this talk about why all of these younger people are abandoning the church. Why are they abandoning beliefs? But as they look at what they actually believe, you might be surprised. In fact, the same Pew Research article that had that statistic also said this. On some traditional measures of religious belief, the differences between millennials and older Americans is not that large. This is from the same article in Pew Research. For instance, when it comes to the views on afterlife, two-thirds of millennials say they believe in heaven, compared with roughly three-quarters of baby boomers and members of the silent generation. And 56% of millennials believe in the concept of hell, which is similar to the older age cohorts. See, millennials are not engaged in church. That's true. But there is this spiritual belief rising beneath the surface. There is this belief that there are supernatural forces at play. We live in a spiritual world. And even though we're modern uh, moves in science, they haven't dislodged that truth Within us. And so I want to look at first the, the good part of this spiritual world. They're angels, and I'm just give you five pieces, five pieces of information about angels that might surprise you. 
The first one is this, that angels are created spiritual beings. Colossians 1 says it this way, for by him all things were created, that's Jesus, and in, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Angels are created spiritual beings. It says right there, whether visible or invisible. They are invisible, created spiritual beings. And secondly, angels are innumerable. Hebrews 12, 22 says that the creation of them was like myriads. In Revelation 5, 11, it says the same thing, that there are countless thousands of angels. Thirdly, angels don't marry. Sorry, people. You can't marry an angel. I know you've been holding out on them, but you can't. Matthew twenty two thirty, Jesus says this, that angels are ne- neither marry nor are given in marriage. Thirdly, or fourthly, angels have rank. In fact, there's only two major angels listed in scripture. One is Michael and the other is Gabriel. Michael is called the archangel. And you see this in Daniel chapter 12, as well as Jude 9, where he's called the great prince or the archangel. He shows up uh, in cameo appearances in Daniel, fighting against Satan, trying to come and help Daniel. And you also see Gabriel. His name means literally man of God or God is strong. And he is a special messenger sent by God. He shows up in Daniel. Gabriel shows up in Daniel. But he also shows up in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, to a little peasant girl named Mary and announces the coming of the Savior. And so what do they do? What, what are, what's the goal of angels? What are they designed to do? Number five, angels help humans. You see the angels work scattered throughout scripture and every time that they show up in scripture, for the most part, it's to help humans. They are worshiping God on the throne. They are uh, there um, with crazy eyes in Ezekiel. But most of the times you see angels, they're moving in to help people. You see this in Genesis with Lot. Lot is in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and angels reach in, grab him, and pull him to safety. You see this with the prophets, with Elijah. He's there, he defied the king, and he's off in the wilderness. He is thirsty and hungry and alone, and angels come and pick him up. You see this with Elisha. There's a moment when Elisha is there with his servant, and they're standing there, and there's an enemy army attacking them. And Elisha sits there with his servant, and his servant is freaking out. What are we going to do? These guys are going to kill us. And Elisha goes, Lord, open his eyes. And the host of heaven open up and he sees that there's angels surrounding there ready to help. And the presence of angel explodes when you see the life of Jesus. I mean, they're there at his birth, announcing it. They go to the shepherds, they're singing about it. The shepherds are freaking out. The angels are declaring. You see, when Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan. He's also ministered to by angels. You see angels at, his ascent, at, uh, at the tomb. And then you see angels at his ascension announcing it. See, when you take a snapshot of the life of Jesus, you see a major spiritual conflict. You can't read the Bible and the life of Jesus without seeing a very real presence of this spiritual force around there. And see, not only do we live in a spiritual world, secondly, we live in a midst of a spiritual war. C.S. Lewis um, was an Oxford professor. He was an atheist for most of his life. 
And in the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about his coming to faith. And one of the things he writes in Mere Christianity is this. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power, a universe in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who held the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God, was good when he was created, and went wrong. You see, there is a dark force in the world, and it's centered around a, an, a fallen angel named Satan. French philosopher Charles, Charles Baudet says this, the devil's finest trick is to persuade you that he does not exist. The worst thing that we can do as Christians is to pretend like there's not a real spiritual war going on and that there is not an enemy that, has, that is looking to wield his power. So who is this guy? Well, I want to take a, a moment, a snapshot at Satan and what he is doing. Satan is a fallen angel. In Ezekiel 28, verse 11 through 19, it talks about him. And what, what caused him to fall? Well, if you were to read that passage, you would see that he was called an anointed cherub. And that he lifted himself up to, to the status of God. He pride indwelled him and he decided that he wanted to be as God. In fact, he's going to use that temptation later on. And that he would be as God. He would be a powerful force that would be equal to God. And that God stood against him and threw him down. And he had a crew along with him. Satan's crew are demons. Demons are a powerful force that have aligned with Satan and they carry out his work in the world. One con- this is where you see the, the demons fall in particular in, in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, and Jude chap- verse, chapter six, or verse 6. And one of the questions I often hear is this, can a believer be possessed by a demon? What does their work look like? Well, Charles Ryrie, a great theologian, writes this. That a demon residing in a person exerting direct, that possession, he describes possession as this, is that a demon is residing in a person exerting direct control and influence over that person with certain derangement, derangement of mind and of body. Demon possession is to be distinguished from a demon influence or demonic activity in relation to the person. The work of the demon is from the outside if he's not possessing him, but on the inside when it's possessing him. From this definition, a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon since he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. However, a believer can be the target of demonic activity to such an extent that he may even give the appearance of demonic possession. You see, Satan isn't targeting everyone. He is a He is is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. And he is not omnipresent. But he has a crew of people that are sent out to do his work. And as you see in the life of Jesus, these demons constantly pop up. They're possessing a guy. They're making someone else mute. They are, they're, they're destroying the life of, of one person before Jesus casts them into pigs. They are present and powerful. And we see them very clearly in the life of Jesus. But what is their strategy? What are they trying to do. Well, our passage says this, put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes, verse 12, of the devil. What are these schemes of Satan? Well, Satan wants to do three things to us. He whispers questions about God's goodness. He tempts us to sin. And he condemns you when you fall. Satan and his demons are desiring to do this, to question the goodness of God, to tempt you to sin, and condemn you when you fall. You see this in Genesis 3 perfectly. When Satan goes to Eve and he says, did God really say? He says, why don't you just take a fruit and eat? See, he shows you the bait and he hides the hook. And when you fall, he moves in with condemnation. He moves in and says, why did you do that? Why did you fall in that way? There's no way you can go back. The only solution is to run. I think the perfect picture of this is the mo- from the movie Lion King. Fans? Love the movie Lion King. And I'm kind of reliving it um, as an older person because I've got four young kids, and they love Lion King. But there's this terrible moment at the beginning of the movie when you see young Simba interact with his uncle Scar. Scar's the Satan figure in this story. Scar says to him, hey, do you you want to be brave? You want to experience all that life has? Just go run. Go experience what it's like over there where the elephants are all buried, elephant burial ground. Go over there. And he comes back and Scar tempts him again. Hey, why don't you go ahead and run, run that way? And he runs and is in the midst of a terrible moment in between two cliffs and a group of of buffalo and, and, and gazelles running through stampeding. And he's in a terrible spot and his dad runs to save him. Throws him up. And in the process, dies. And you see Simba and he, he feels like it's his fault. He didn't see the whole story play out. He just sees that this moment is his fault and he goes back to his uncle Scar and Scar says, yeah, I don't know why you ran. I don't know why you disobeyed your father. You better leave. You see, our culture lives in this tension. They bait you to the edge of sin and then condemn you as soon as you engage. Our world screams about sexual freedom and as soon as our political leaders engage in it, they then condemn them for doing it. Our entire world baits us to the edge of sin. And as soon as we cross the line, they turn and look and condemn us in the midst of it. There's a reason for it. Because 1 Corinthians says that the world is guided by the prince of the power of the air. This entire world system is all along the same lines to tempt us to the edge of disaster and condemn us when we fall. See, and every one of us is susceptible to the schemes. Tim Keller has a a phenomenal sermon on spiritual warfare. And he, he describes the way Satan works like this. Like opening up the top of a piano. He says, Satan, what Satan does is, is if you open up the top of a piano and kind of sing in, assuming you have some sort of tone or key, uh, one of those piano strings will vibrate according to the tone that you're singing into it. And as soon as you sing in, a, a C will, will, will start vibrating or some note will start vibrating so you know the voice, the sound of the voice. He says, Satan's like that. As a Christian, he can't own you. 
but he can get your strings vibrating. So if you struggle with lust, he'll speak lust into you. If you struggle with pride, he'll speak pride into you. If you struggle with anger, he'll speak anger into you. He knows what gets you going, and he speaks those words to get you vibrating, to get you off course. See, the truth is that we are susceptible to the powers of the evil one. And Satan studied us, and his demons are watching us, and he's speaking words to get us off course. See, we live in a spiritual world. We are in the midst of a spiritual war. And so the last thing that we have to do is to engage in a spiritual fight. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. He uses a word, wrestle. And wrestle isn't aerial attack. Wrestle isn't shooting guns from, from the side. You know what the word wrestle is in Greek? It's used to describe Greco-Roman wrestlers in close quarters, hand-to-hand combat. It's like, it's like Satan is right with you. It's like his demons are right with you. And it's, it's personal. But not only is it personal, secondly, it says we wrestle. It's not optional. Every one of us is in the midst of this spiritual conflict. And thirdly, although the war is spiritual, it plays out in the physical. It says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Why does he say flesh and blood? Because so often it feels like this person is against me. And it's true, it plays out in the physical. But there's something beyond the physical going on. It says that we wrestle, it is personal, it isn't optional, and it is spiritual. So how do we fight? Well, what Paul says at the very beginning of this passage is this. To be strong in the Lord. See, the strength for this battle doesn't come in our ability to stand. The strength for this battle comes in your ability to stay close to the Lord. You see, the strength isn't from me. The strength isn't from you. The strength comes from God. In fact, Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. In John 15, he says, look, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Our ability to stand in this fight comes with our ability to stick close to him. And he goes on to describe this armor to be fitted out with, to be outfitted with. And I was talking to another pastor about preaching this text. He goes, it just seems unhelpful. How do I dress in the belt of truth? I don't have a breastplate of righteousness. I got cool shoes, but I don't know that they're gospel shoes. Shield of faith, I don't know. I don't carry a shield around. Helmet of salvation, okay. Sword of the spirit, okay. That one's the word of God. Okay, maybe I've got that one. And it can seem very challenging to go, how do I practically put on these pieces? And there's been a lot of theologians that that kind kind of argue about what Paul's drawing from to get these pictures. What's he drawing from to get these ideas of, of spiritual armor? And they're like, maybe he's looking at a Roman soldier while he's sitting there in prison writing this out. But actually not. Many theologians actually believe that he's pulling from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. In Isaiah, he says this. He 
put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. In Isaiah chapter 59, he's talking about the Messiah, Jesus who would come. And when Paul is saying, put on the full armor of God, what he's saying is what he's said in other books, put on Christ. Put on the strength of the only one who can save you. Put on the strength of the only one who can withstand the schemes of the devil. Put on Christ. Be clothed in him. That means this. You believe in him and believe that he is the one who will lead us in victory. Colossians 2.13 says it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. C.S. Lewis says, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. You want to win this war? You get clothed in Christ. That means you put your faith wholly and solely in him and his victory. You put your faith wholly and solely on his work on the cross for every single one of us. You rest in him and that is your starting point. The second thing is this, to know where you're tempted. What gets you? One thing I would strongly encourage you um, to do is this, to be a student of yourself. When are you likely to fall? Is it when you're at home alone? Is it late at night? Is it after a long week where you've poured out yourself so hard and you just feel like I'm tempted to sin? Is it when you go to certain places? Is it when you talk with certain friends? I would encourage you to be a student of yourself. Know where you're likely to fall. And secondly, use us. You see what Paul says in this section? He says, we stand. Our struggle. Throughout the entire passage, he's talking about our struggle and us. First Peter says this, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know how lions target their prey? One of my favorite YouTube videos plays this out. So a little while ago, I was watching this YouTube video and it's this guy with a little handheld camera watching a, a little gazelle drink water from a, from a little pond. And it's so cute, so sweet. You can tell he's there with his family. Oh, look at it. And suddenly you see out of the water chomp an alligator on the gazelle's leg. And, and the camera guy's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And you see this gazelle kind of like squirming for life. And then he pans the camera over and you see this pride of lions coming after this lone gazelle who's in a lot of danger. And as they come over there, all of a sudden they start jumping on top of this stranded, isolated gazelle and start chomping into it. And you're watching this going, it's kind of like watching a train wreck. You're like, you want to avert your eyes, but you kind of want to see what happens. And, and so you're there going, what's going to go on? 
And then suddenly, it's almost like the music turns on, and you see this pride of water buffalo. Sorry, it's a baby water buffalo. You see this pride of water buffalo coming around the bend. And it's led by a single leader, and I personally think it was the mama. Because she comes along, and she sees that line and just manhandles it, hits it with the horns, and the thing goes flying off to the side. And you see this little baby water buffalo, sorry, not because a water buffalo, let free and ride home with this community. And I was like, that's it. That's the Christian life. You're never meant to be alone. And when Satan sees you alone, you are open target for his attacks. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've sat there with my own thoughts about what I think about me, what I think about my life, what I think about what I should do. And as I sit there thinking through ideas in my head, I don't come up with the right conclusions. I start doubting me. I start berating myself for all of my mistakes. I knock myself down and down and down and I have some good friends around me that I get to sit with and go, is this true? Do you see this in me? And they can stand beside me and encourage me and pull me out of a dangerous place. So use us and lastly, look to the author. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. When you're in the midst of a dark place, you take your eyes up and you look at him. I listened to Tony Evans give a phenomenal sermon that I could never reproduce on this text and this idea. And he quotes a moment from from the 1996 Olympics. And I was a little kid at that time, but I remember when the Olympics was in America in 1996 and watching the American athletes compete. And we're in the Olympic year. I'm excited about watching it this year. But there was one gymnast in particular who, who stole the show, stole the stage. Her name was Carrie Strug. And she was a little teenage girl. And the Americans were, were competing to, to win the Olympic team title in gymnastics. And Carrie Strug needed to complete the vault in order to get enough points to put America over the top to get the gold. And she goes through her first vault and runs, does her flips, goes over and lands and twists her ankle terribly. Immediately falls to the ground and is laying there. And you see this collective awe go, against the, go across the audience. What are you going to do? She's down. She's, she's out. There's no way that she can rise. And, and you see her look to her coach, Bella Caroli. Bella Caroli, who has trained some of the best Olympians who had ever competed. And you see Bella say, look at me, Carrie. She's Russian or something. Look at me. <laughs> and you see these tears streaming down her face as she looks at her coach. She's like, look at me. Go to the runway. You see her back up and she's like, she can't even walk. She's gimping. She's she's hurt. She's maimed. She's in a terrible spot. And she gets back to the edge and they go, run. And she runs, vaults, lands on two feet, barely stands on one, arms up, falls down. They win the gold. You watch the people run and cheer as she ran her part in this race. Is the spiritual life hard? You bet. Are we going to get wounded? You bet. 
Are there going to be moments when you want to throw down your hands and say, I can't? Yes. But if you focus your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of your faith, and you reach out to us, we will help carry you through to the end. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you so much that you, you love us more than we love ourselves. And that, Jesus, you sent yourself to come pay the ultimate price for us. You weren't one to simply stand on the side. You entered into the battlefield and laid down your life that we might have faith in you. And Lord, you were tempted in everything that we're tempted in. You went to war against Satan. You dealt a blow and you will deal a final blow at the end of history when you silence him and usher in freedom. But we're in the middle of the war. I pray that you would help us to to see that there is a spiritual reality, a spiritual battle, and that we would look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we would reach out to one another to stand together in this fight. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great morning.